This is AQR's The Curious Investor, a show that breaks down some of the most important ideas in finance to help us make better investment decisions. I'm Dan Villalon. And I'm Gabe Figali. In most competitive activities, you need skill. The better you are, the more you'll win, right? Well, kind of. In a lot of cases like sports, gambling, or investing, there are a lot of other factors at play. Things like noise, uncertainty, and luck. And that can be frustrating at times because you don't know if you're going to be a victim or beneficiary of luck. It can also make it difficult to determine whether somebody has skill. For instance, say some stocks I own did better than some stocks Gabe owns. Did I do better because I'm more skilled? Or was it just because I got lucky? For the record, it's obviously because you got lucky. (laughs) Well, today we talk to two people in different fields who spend a lot of time trying to answer this question. Um, Annie Duke, lapsed academic, former professional poker player, uh, recent author of the book Thinking in Bets. We're also joined by a curious investor regular. I'm Toby Moskowitz, principal at AQR, also a professor at Yale University School of Management. Let's start by looking at how we humans assess whether something was a good or a bad decision. Annie Duke has a simple thought experiment to show how we do this almost every day. Gabe is driving along, Dan. This is all you know. He's driving along, and I'm going to tell you he was following the rules of the road. His car was well-maintained. He was not speeding. And he proceeded through a green light, and he got in an accident. Was it a bad decision? Come on, Dan. You're on my side, right? (laughs) Uh, Well, I want to say no because he was doing everything he should have been doing. Right. So this is a case where you allow the uncertainty to be the main driver of the outcome because this is a decision that is incredibly well replicated, well agreed upon. We have a lot of consensus around it. This is very status quo. So here we have a bad outcome, but Gabe was doing everything right. The accident probably wasn't his fault. You know, just bad luck. But now let's say I'm playing poker. And not against Annie, who would take all my money, obviously. I'm in a game with a few friends. Given the hand that I have and the size of the pot, I calculate the odds of winning, and I go all in with a pair of tens. It's a somewhat atypical move, but I don't have much money left. If you run the odds, it's actually my best bet to get back in the game. The dealer flips his cards, and I get blown out. In this case, people might not have all the information Gabe has but they'd see the bad result and probably think Gabe made a bad decision. And that's the difference between when we have clarity into the quality of the decision and when we don't. And we don't like that uncertainty. We don't like not knowing. We don't like not understanding why something happened. So in that, we're going to find it somewhere. We're either going to find it because the decision is well understood. Or, or if we can't find it there, we're going to find it by looking at the outcome. When it came to crashing a car, luck got the blame. But when it came to poker, Gabe did, even though he made the right move. In both cases, the outcome is equally poor. But in one case, in the case where the decision is not well understood, this was your fault, I'm putting this completely up to skill, so you made a bad decision, because I don't understand it. Annie says the reason we're more critical of Gabe in the second case is because of something she calls resulting. Basically, what it means is deciding that you know something about the decision because you happen to know how it turned out. And I think that if you 
tell people, hey, what do you think? Is that a good idea? If you know how something turned out, that that tells you something about the decision, I think most people would say that's totally reasonable. Um, But when there's a lot of noise in the world, which can come mainly from luck, but also from hidden information, what happens is that the quality of an outcome is actually very poorly correlated to the quality of the decision that might precede it. So why do our minds work that way? Annie thinks our skepticism and downplaying of luck goes way back. Our ancestors probably didn't like noise they couldn't explain, statistical or otherwise. So if you think about it, you know, you're Homo erectus on the savanna and you hear rustling in the leaves, it's really good for you to automatically think that's a lion and run away. Um, And if you're a little bit more skeptical, if you take that type of, well, this is uncertain, I don't know, let me figure this out, um, you're dead. So uh, people who maybe have more of a tendency to think that way – are dead. <laughs> so they don't they didn't have they didn't have any progeny. So we know that that kind of um, thinking about these things in a more certain relationship we really like. Um, and then the other piece of the puzzle is that what goes along with that because we really don't like uncertainty is when we feel like we can't see through uh, to the quality of the decision or why something happened because it's opaque. What we do is we take this shortcut that provides that certainty for us. Well, there is a thing that I can see. I can tell very clearly what the quality of the outcome was. And while that kind of quick judgment might have been useful on the savanna, it could be a big problem today. Many of life's important and difficult decisions come with a lot of variation in their results. You make a decision, and there's a whole bunch of different ways that it can turn out. And once you've banked the decision, you don't really have any control over the way it goes. And, you know, there's some dispersion of results. And okay. So people don't really like that. But if you're going to be a good decision maker, it's all about your ability to forecast those kinds of things. One of the biggest pitfalls in decision making is being overconfident. Annie's come up with a handy way to avoid falling into that trap. So if you state something with great certainty, like some belief that you have about, oh, I know I'm going to like this movie that we're going to go see. It looks amazing. I know I'm going to like it. And I say to you, well, do do you want to bet on that? What happens to you immediately? You think about it. You're like, uh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now let me think about that. You think about it. Annie's latest book, Thinking in Bets, is all about this idea. One example is a research study called the Reproducibility Project. The Reproducibility Project goes back to 2011 and tries to address a growing problem in research, whether an experiment, if done again, produces the same results. The project originally took 100 published psychology studies and asked researchers to reproduce them. And for a lot of these studies, the results just couldn't be reproduced. Annie's book mentions a related experiment done by Anna Drieber, a behavioral economist. She took 44 studies and asked researchers a slightly different question. How well can you predict ahead of time whether a study will be successfully reproduced or not? One group of researchers was asked the simple question, will the results of the paper be reproduced? they were right about 58% of the time. The other group was asked to place bets on whether these studies were able to be reproduced or not. Here, the success rate jumped up to 71%. 
And why? Because now they're, they're explicitly thinking, oh, I'm making a bet and I've got capital and I have something at risk. And it kind of forces you to start thinking about it in a less biased way. Um, and, I, and I really think that it's because uh, it's just reminding you of what a decision really is. And what it does is it makes the uncertainty bubble to the surface. And look, 58 to 71 percent is an improvement, but it's not earth shattering. That said, if you could improve your results from a 58 to 71 percent success rate just by asking, want to bet, wouldn't you want to do that? Let's turn to investing. Money is always on the line, and in a sense, you're always making some kind of a bet. You'd think that people would be much better at decision-making here. Unfortunately not. Firstly, there's a lot of noise in investing. It's not always easy to tell if something was a good or bad decision based just on the result. So resulting might be especially misleading in financial markets. Secondly, even though there's always money on the line, many investors make consistent behavioral mistakes. And those behavioral mistakes are a big reason factor investing tends to work. We've talked a lot about factors on this show, but here's Toby Moskowitz, a professor of finance at Yale and a principal at AQR, with a reminder. It's just a set of characteristics that describe returns and sometimes risk as well. Uh, you can think of it think of it almost like Moneyball applied to finance, which is we don't fall in love with an individual stock or the name of a player, but the characteristics that that stock brings. So, and some of the common ones are things like value, something that looks cheap, that's a characteristic, something that has momentum, that's done well recently. But not every stock is cheaper than average and not every stock has better momentum than average. In other words, we can't all be value and momentum investors. You can think of financial markets in some sense as a zero-sum game because the market, which contains the investment of everything, that's the only thing we can all hold at the same time, right? So if I like cheap stocks, it has to be because someone else is willing to sell me those cheap stocks. They have to, therefore, like expensive stocks. Toby and some of his colleagues are writing a paper on this. It's called, Who is on the Other Side? As in any competitive activity, wouldn't it be nice to know about your competition? Before we get into it, we should note that this is a particularly fun episode for us. Normally, we talk about research that's been completed and published. Who is on the other side is actually a work in progress. So this is some hot-off-the-press stuff. Before they even got started, the authors had to figure out a couple of things. The first step is just knowing that there is someone on the other side, and there's always going to be someone on the other side. That's the first thing. Then there's a, you know, sort of a deeper question, which is, who is that? Um, the problem is we don't have great data in the United States to know who's on what side of uh, the portfolio. I mean, if, if we did this in Scandinavia, you could know every trade by every individual, plus their tax returns, their IQ score, and everything, everything you'd want to know. Uh, and, I, and that's not a joke. That's actually fact. Everything I just said, that data's been used. IQ? IQ, because they have to serve military, and they take an IQ test. Oh, that's wild. Toby and his co-authors aren't looking to investigate every security that gets traded. Instead, what they're interested in is factors. And their question is, if all the evidence out there suggests being long a certain factor is good for returns, then who would be short that factor? Like, if value investing is a good thing, who's betting against value? While factors work in many asset classes, this AQR paper focuses on U.S. equities, where data was more readily available. 
By using data like 13F reports, the authors could see which kinds of investors were long or short different factors. Basically, you can figure out who is on the other side based on where the money is. And with this data, Toby can try to answer a bunch of important questions. One is just knowing who is on the other side most of the time. One is also knowing who is becoming on the other side or who's moving around on the other side. And so there's a number of interesting research questions here, which is, is there a natural holder of the other side? Does it change? Does it switch after, say, a you know, the 2008 crisis, you know, what factors determine when, when that might change? And then there's kind of an even bigger question, which would be, the, you know, the billion-dollar question. Could you predict that? Answer's no, by the way. Um, we've, we're looking at it. We've tried. <laughs> You've ruined the episode. Yeah, Thanks, exactly. Toby. Sorry to disappoint. But there's a lot of interesting stuff that Toby and his co-authors were able to find. Going in, Toby had some guesses for what they'd find. There was some early work using some of these detailed retail databases that definitely found that uh, retail investors prefer growthy kind of lottery type stocks. So I sort of expected that with the growth value type paradigm. And value we always think of as kind of more of a long-term investor. The study looked at more than just retail investors. Among others, it also covered hedge funds and pension funds. And in addition to the value factor, the paper looks at momentum, size, and low beta. The low beta factor goes long low beta securities and short high beta securities. So for an equity investor, you'd like low risk stocks and dislike high risk stocks. And you might think, well, I don't like risk, so why would I ever buy high beta anything? The answer is returns. If you have a high return target you're trying to hit, the low risk stuff might not be enough to get you there. In theory though, there are two ways to get higher returns. You can invest in riskier high beta stocks, or you can use some leverage on the lower risk stocks. But what if a large group of investors can't lever? It could be because they're averse to using leverage, or maybe by statute, they're not allowed to have leverage in their portfolios. If those investors are seeking high returns, then they have to go for higher beta stocks. And what that can do is leave the more neglected low beta stocks at bargain prices. You would expect like well-capitalized insurance companies and hedge funds probably are going to be on the low beta side and retail investors, mutual funds that are more constrained are going to be on the high beta side. You might think since hedge funds routinely use some leverage that they would naturally be the ones taking advantage of the low beta factor. But that's not what the data shows. Some hedge funds might be, but as a group, they're on the other side. When it comes to momentum, larger investors tend to be long that premium, while smaller investors tend to be on the other side of that. And that seems intuitive. If you think momentum is in part due to behavioral biases, you know, maybe smaller, non-professional investors might be more likely to fall prey to those biases. But there are some places where who's on the other side changes through time, like the value factor. As a group, pension funds seem to be on the long side, and bank trusts on the short side. But for lots of other types of investors, it wasn't as consistent. And for a researcher, that might not be very satisfying. From a theoretical perspective, again, my academic roots uh, coming back here, um, which is 
you know, I think I would feel better if there was someone chronically on the other side. I would feel like I understood the factor a bit better. I understand the premium that, let's say, we're earning by being long that factor and what the other side is paying for. I also think that's helpful in the sense that I can also model that other side and modify how we might trade that by saying, well, gee, they're going to care about it more at this time versus that time. Take leverage constraints, right? Well, when leverage gets more expensive, it's going to be more constraining. When liquidity dries up in the borrowing market, it's going to get more expensive. Those are times when I'd expect to see a bigger premium or a smaller premium. I feel like I could predict things a bit better in that instance. So far, we've been talking about who is on the other side. Another big question is why are they on the other side? If the smart money is long a factor, why would somebody be short it? Yes, if I were to say the reason they're short is because they're stupid and don't know this stuff, right? <laughs> I don't love that explanation. There are, there are, by the way, that's a serious explanation that some academics give, which is people don't know about momentum and value and they're just being dumb being on the other side. I don't believe that's the case. People have been short those factors for more than a century in all kinds of markets and asset classes and in all kinds of environments. I think they know they're short. And they don't mind being short. They want to be. Take the leverage aversion, right? If you're a big pension fund that can't use leverage, you don't mind being long the high-risk stocks or short the low-risk stocks, whatever that is, being on the other side of those, because you can't be. It's just an impossibility. Think of it almost like a liquidity premium, right? You earn a premium for owning something that's illiquid. If you're on the other side of that transaction, you're not upset. That's what you're paying for. You're paying for liquidity. And you're happy to pay for it because you need it. If you think of factors in those terms, and I do, then it's natural that these things will be there for a long time because there is a natural holder of the other side. You can think of being long a factor as bearing some kind of a risk that another investor wants to avoid. For example, the low beta factor. If we lever and hold low beta stocks, we're taking on a risk. Leverage. That's something another investor might not want to do. And they're going to pay us for that. So I often think of who's on the other side as almost like an insurance contract. That's what we mean by risk sharing, right? Not everybody wants to bear fire insurance on their home. So you sell it off to an insurance company. But the insurance company is bearing that risk. They're just doing it in a way that's cheaper than it would be for me. They're diversified. They have more liquid assets, all that kind of stuff. I think financial markets work much the same way. So you might expect that different factors would have different types of investors on the other side. You would think that there will be firms like us who are kind of long lots of factors. Let's say we're long value, we're long momentum, we're long quality or low beta, uh, we're long, you know, other sorts of factors. And the people that are on the other side of that, I wouldn't expect that to always be the same person. Going back to the insurance example, a single insurance company might underwrite fire insurance, earthquake insurance, flood insurance but you wouldn't expect the same person to be on the other side of all three of those. So I guess uh, uh, one way of saying this is you'd expect on one side people that are long the factors to be diversified across those factors, but on the short side, it's likely going to be different people who are on the other side. As for Annie, well, she made a career thinking about who's on the other side. On every poker hand, she's trying to evaluate the odds that she's on the right side by asking herself, do you want to bet? You start to do more vetting of your own beliefs. You start to be thinking about, you know, what information don't I have? How much do I need to seek out? How much luck is actually going to be an influence in the way that this thing turns out? And one of the things it particularly asks you to do is, what does the person who's betting me know that I don't know? 
Gabe, I think that's a wrap. To me, today's episode is about trying to get a leg up in a noisy environment. For Annie and Toby, it's not enough to have a good strategy. You also want to know something about the people you're up against. And that's not easy. But it is worth the effort. For interested listeners, we'll post a draft of Toby's paper once it's ready for circulation. And for those listeners who want to know who's on the other side of curious at aqr.com, send us an email to find out. And that does it for season two of The Curious Investor. So from us and the whole crew behind the show, thanks for listening. I'm Dan Villalon. And I'm Gabe Figali. You stay curious, my friends. You mentioned the Scandies as having very granular Scandies? Is that what we're calling them? It's not a thing. (laughs) Dan just made that up. (laughs) It's kind of offensive. They they do have this. I think I know where you're going with this question. So, you know, as an example, I mean, it would be very unfriendly. I really don't recommend anybody actually do this. But if you said to that couple who had just gotten married, you know, what are the chances you're going to get divorced? (laughs) I know it's horrible. And they said 0%. And you said, do you want to bet? They'd be like, oh, wait, what's the base rate? Um, <laughs> Based on that question, I might increase the probability. Of- <laughs> I'm gonna get I'm gonna get punched in the face. But you understand, like we can ask that about decisions that aren't quite so personal. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated, and do not necessarily reflect the views of AQR itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice, and it should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. AQR does not assume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of AQR as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including any direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2019, AQR Capital, LLC, all rights reserved.